Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 7, verses 21 to the end of the chapter. And if you're using one of these uh, black Bibles provided on a cart in the back, you'll find it on page 532. If you're familiar at all with the book of Proverbs, you know that it covers a wide range of subjects, and it often jumps from one to the next, um, and it's just all over the place with all kinds of good, solid, practical, wise advice. But if you come to Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, that's a concentrated section. Almost all of those three chapters deals with the folly and the danger of immorality and the blessing and, and the profit of purity and fidelity in marriage. That ought to say something to us, just the way that subject is treated in the book of Proverbs, that we have a large concentrated section on that subject ought to say something to us about how important it is. We're going to read the end of chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 is a rather detailed description of how a foolish, naive young man falls into immorality. And chapter 7, verse 21 to the end is the conclusion of that description. So please hear the Word of God now as it's read. Proverbs 7, beginning at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she, the adulteress, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, I think few things can be more scary than seeing a house on fire. Maybe you've seen one up close. Maybe it's been your own. But that's a scary sight. And sometimes those fires can be started by arson. Sometimes those can be started by natural disasters. And sometimes they can be started from something inside the house, electrical problem or gas problem or something along those lines. But it's a scary sight to see a house on fire. And as we come this morning to, to the book of Proverbs in our series on first aid for the family, we're going to talk about a fire. And it's a fire 
that if not kept in the fireplace where God intended it, can literally burn the house down. You know, when we were thinking about topics for this series, for what we need to talk about and preach on related to caring for the family and tending to its welfare and its health, it's good to ask the question, what does the Bible say will blow up your home? What does the Bible say will, will be an issue that may destroy your family and not just what we think? And so we come this morning to something that I'm persuaded is a very, very real warning and a very, very real issue in terms of family health. Nothing will destroy a family or potentially destroy a family than the way husband and wife handle their human sexuality. Sexuality is a fire. The Bible describes it as, as such. And when it's kept in the fireplace where God intended it, it is sweet and it gives warmth to the whole house. But when it is taken outside of that fireplace and used in ways that the Bible encourages us and commands us not to use it, it can burn the house down. It can be like taking the fire in your literal home if you have a fireplace and moving that wood and moving those flames out into the middle of your living room. Chances are the house is coming down if that happens. So this morning, I want to look at these, kind of do a flyover of these three chapters in Proverbs and talk about the issue of fidelity in marriage and marital faithfulness. First of all, and I want to do that under five headings. I want to talk about, first of all, God's creation of human sexuality. Secondly, the temptation of sexual immorality. Three, the destruction of immorality. Four, protection from immorality. And five, redemption from immorality. So creation, temptation, destruction, protection, and redemption. Let's start with creation. You know, our culture has a wide variety of views regarding human sexuality. And to say that our culture is mildly confused in this area would probably be an understatement. I mean, there's everything from attitudes that are as liberal as can possibly be, and there's attitudes that are as conservative and fundamental as possible. For instance, if you take the liberal view that human sexuality is almost like a god, it's a natural human appetite which ought not to be stifled. It's a form of self-expression where individuals can choose how best they see fit to use it. That'd be on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you would have human sexuality as being gross. Don't talk about it. It's a necessary evil. That's not so much the common view in our particular Western culture, but it is a dominant view in much of the world where fundamentalist religion reigns. And I'm not talking about fundamentalism just in, in terms of Christianity. It's dirty, it's degrading, it has to do with base animal desires, and it's not a part of our rational, intelligent, mental being, so it's somehow below us, or at least a necessary evil. Well, the Bible doesn't take either one of those views, and we're interested in what the biblical view is. And the biblical view is that human sexuality is a gift to be enjoyed between two image bearers, male and female, in the covenant of marriage. God created sex to exist within that context. Michael Lawrence, a pastor, says that human sexuality is like a is like he, he likens it to food. And he says, 
within marriage, human sexuality is like a great steak dinner. It is something that is tasty. It's something that's, depending on the steak, I guess, relatively good for you. And it's something that brings joy and, and happiness in the, in the home, if you're not a vegetarian. <laughs> the second, he says, but sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage is like candy. It's like a steady diet of candy. It'll taste good at first, but it rots you and it'll make you sick. And no one can be sustained by a steady diet of candy. So God created sex to exist within the context in which it will be most helpful to human flourishing and most consistent with his purpose for it to his glory. So it's not gross. It's a part of God's very good creation in the beginning. God not only allows sex within marriage, but he strongly commands it in 1 Corinthians 7 and other passages. And the Song of Solomon itself is a book that soars with romantic imagery, making it a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. So it's not gross, but it's also not God. It's not about individual experience and private exercise and expression. It's not primarily about any of those things. Rather, it's a uniting act for male and female within marriage, for a husband and a wife to share together, and it's primarily a way to know God and build relationship. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, quote, Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. It's God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for it. It creates a place of security and vulnerability and intimacy. The marriage covenant is necessary for sex, and sex is necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. So the Bible then does not command sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a negative and low view of human sexuality. Rather, it commands um, sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a positive and high view of it. So the biblical view is that not just that sex outside of marriage, whether before marriage or during marriage, is morally wrong, although it is that, but it's personally harmful since it is made for whole life entrustment and complete self-giving between husband and wife, it should not surprise us when we, mis that we, when we misuse it, it makes us feel deeply connected to another person. Again, Keller writes, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties to another person, feeling that the other person has obligations to you. But that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. So it's a fire, and it's a fire that was created by God as a very good thing, 
for pleasure and procreation and mutual companionship and the building of relationship between man and wife. But if it's not kept in the fireplace, it can become a very dangerous thing. And the writer of the Proverbs, probably Solomon, as he's writing to his son, knows that reality. And so he writes Proverbs chapter 5 to 7, for the most part, as Tim said, to warn against marital unfaithfulness. So second point, talked about creation. Let's talk about temptation, which is the main theme of these few chapters. As a result of human sin in Genesis 3 and on, our sexuality is broken and our desires are distorted. The Bible acknowledges this reality and has words of warning to, to us regarding how inappropriate use of our sexuality can destroy our relationships and destroy our family. One such inappropriate use is looking to express our sexuality with someone other than our husband or our wife. And it's to this temptation that our passage draws our attention this morning. Now, we're going we're gonna to mostly camp in chapter 7 for a couple of minutes, but we're going to come back to chapter 5 and a little bit in chapter 6 as well. So if you're in chapter 7, stay right there. And if you're not, please um, draw your attention to it. We're going to talk about where temptation to adultery and marital unfaithfulness come from according to this chapter. And I want to just quickly run off seven sources of temptation to marital unfaithfulness. And we're going to start in verse 6. And here what Solomon does is he's teaching his son. He's saying, son, listen to me. And then he shares a story, an illustration of a situation in which a man finds himself with a woman he shouldn't be with and only later to engage in physical intimacy with her and the resulting consequences that are bound to come from it. So first of all, notice the man's situation in verse 6, as Solomon writes, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, and darkness. What's going on here? This young man has made himself extremely vulnerable. He's in the wrong place. <laughs> he's in the wrong, he's at the wrong, it's at the wrong time. Perhaps he thinks he's able to resist. He's proud, he's self-reliant. Perhaps he's lonely. Perhaps he's being idle. He just doesn't know what else to do. He obviously is wandering around at nighttime in an area of town that is not good. But the picture is one of vulnerability. He's made himself vulnerable, and that's where temptation comes. Where husband and wife do not have a strong relationship, in this case, the, the man's not married, but he's, he's warning him about preserving and, and keeping fidelity to, to, to purity even before he's married. But the point is, is he sees this young man passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house 
in the twilight of the evening at the time of night and darkness. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's vulnerable. Notice who he sees and comes upon. And behold, verse 10, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. So she has an alluring appearance. She's dressing in ways that accentuate her body. She's dressing in ways tempting to draw the man to her. But it doesn't stop there. You get a description in verse 11. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, in every corner she lies in wait. Verse 13, she physically touches him. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, verse 14, I had to, off, I had, I had to offer sacrifices and today I paid my vows. This is very interesting. Solomon slides in this little detail about this woman's religious morality. She's, she's trying to paint this picture like she's a really good person. I mean, she's a religious person. She's concerned about God. She's concerned about, you know, Christian things. But it's all external. It's all phony. It's all fake. So there's this vulnerability. There's this appearance. There's this touch. There's this reassurance of morality. And verse 15, there's flattery. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. She starts speaking to him like he's Superman. You know, you're just what I was looking for. And often a, a, a major source of temptation to unfaithfulness in marriage is through the words that are spoken between two people. Flattery, inappropriate communication saying things about one another or to one another that you ought not to be saying. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. So she's trying to give him promises of excitement. She's promising this environment that I've set up for us is wonderful. You're going to love it. It's going to smell great. It's going to look great. So these promises of excitement. And then she gives him in verses 19 and 20 reassurances that nothing's going to happen as a consequence. You don't have to worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. She's, going to, she's trying to assuage his doubts and fears. She says in verse 19, for my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him and at full moon he will come home. He's going to be gone a while. And then it starts where Tim read. She persuades him. And he heads off like an ox to the slaughter. So the temptation is very real. And, the, and Solomon creates a scenario in which all the elements are there. The element of vulnerability and appearance and touch and assuasion of guilt and responsibility and consequence and flattery and communication and excitement. He paints it all. And he also tells us, third point, of the destruction that comes from it. Now, I want to talk briefly about five things that marital unfaithfulness and infidelity destroys, or what things does it bring with it in its wake. First of all, it brings social destruction. Unfaithfulness brings regret and shame. Let's look back at Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 11.
He says in verse 7, Son, listen to me. Don't depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And then he says in verse 11, Lest at the end of your life you groan and your flesh is consumed and body are consumed. And you say, Oh, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers and incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You can lose all you've worked for, lose your reputation. It's the literal scarlet letter. So unfaithfulness brings regret and shame. Now we're living in a pretty perverse culture right now where adultery is becoming common. And Derek Kidner actually said this. He said, it's actually a sign of cultural health when you receive sort of a, where it's, it's, a, it's a fear for you of what society might think of you in light of adultery. I don't think society would think anything of you in light of adultery these days, which is a sign of sickness. It's a sign of sickness that somebody could do this and be like, eh, we'll get the divorce, move on with my life, no, no repercussions whatsoever. And in fact, in some ways, society would affirm you for your choice. So in this context, though, it's assuming that he's writing to someone who fears the Lord because he says he's, in verse 14, I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. We need to think about this, brothers and sisters, of what social consequences are going to flow out. Your commitment of adultery and infidelity in your marriage affects everybody in this room and all of your family relationships. It's not just about the two of you. It affects the, all the, and all of sin has that effect. It's not just this particular sin. All of sin spills over into other areas of life and affects other areas of relationship. Chapter six, verse 33, he will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. I mean, it can't be stronger in light of the social consequences of marital unfaithfulness. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So there's social consequences. Secondly, there's financial consequences. Chapter five, verse 10, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors, that which you work for and the money you earn, go to the house of a foreigner. And that's especially true if your marriage dissolves because of it and you have to pay child support. Chapter 6, verse 26. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, or it can also be translated, the price of a prostitute leaves a man with nothing but a loaf of bread. It strips you financially. And then chapter 6, verses 30 and 31, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay, he will pay, pay, pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. So Proverbs would warn us about the financial consequences of marital unfaithfulness as well. So social, financial, thirdly, spiritual. There are spiritual consequences because marital unfaithfulness and infidelity invites the discipline of God. Chapter five, verse 21. 
For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, including his ways on the street with that woman, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Chapter 6, verses 27 and 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be, not be scorched? The answer is no, not likely. Verse 29, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So the point is, is if we're unfaithful in marriage, we will hear from our father about this. He does not allow his children to stray without discipline. You know, sometimes we commit sin. We expect lightning to strike. Nothing happens, so we relax. And God says, no, your sin will find you out. So there are spiritual consequences. There are also physical consequences. Chapter 6, verses 34 and 35. For jealousy makes a man furious. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Unfaithfulness invites the just anger of other people. There are, there are perhaps physical consequences. What I mean by that, you might get punched in the mouth. That's what I mean. <laughs> There'll be, there could be physical consequences. He's like, he's saying this man, this husband found out that Another man slept with his wife, and he's not going to accept him if you offer 500 bucks. He's coming after you. That's what Proverbs 6, 34 and 35 say. So he's going to be furious. He may be furious. And he'll not, if he loves his wife, he will be. And he will not spare when he takes revenge. So there could be physical consequences. And finally, not only social, not only financial Spiritual, physical, but marital. Chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Now, it's very important to understand what Solomon's talking about here. He's saying when he says springs, he's talking about sexual capacity for males and he's saying, don't have illegitimate children. Let your sexual capacity be reserved between you and your wife. If not, it could result in, your, in something going on outside of your family that will result in the disillusion of that relationship. It may very well destroy your family. It's one of the two biblical grounds for divorce. Broken trust with your spouse, possible illegitimate children, creates great destruction. So that destruction is intended by God to serve as a loud warning for us about marital unfaithfulness. You know, I, I didn't grow up in the, um, in the, in the time where th they have driver's ed classes in school. I don't know if I don't know why that was, why they stopped doing that. I could have benefited from one, I'm sure. 
but perhaps many of you did. You had a driver's ed course in school. And one of, the, one of the things that they did in that driver's ed course, no doubt, is they didn't just start by putting you in the car and saying, okay, with the driver's ed instructor, okay, grab the steering wheel, go ahead and put it in, put it in drive, or lightly press on the gas, let's move forward. Chances are, first, you sit in a classroom and you watch videos. Did everybody do that? You sit in class and watch videos? And what were on those videos? Did they, they showed you car accidents. Um, this person didn't buckle their seatbelt. This person was a young person who wasn't trained properly. Or this, I mean, they just tried to show you the most graphic, I guess for public school graphic, but gra- just they tried to scare you into what might happen if you're not a good driver, right? They wanted to show you those videos to kind of go, whoa, don't want to do that. Well, that's sort of what Solomon is trying to do here. He's trying to put a legitimate and strong fear deep down in our bones of the destruction that comes through marital unfaithfulness. Well, we've talked about creation. We've talked about temptation. We've talked about destruction. Now let's talk about protection. Protection. Because... God has lots of wisdom for us here in that regard as well. And I want to say five things here quickly, too, about protection. Number one, resolve to walk with Jesus. Resolve to walk with Jesus. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Don't have wandering eyes. Look straight forward. Let your gaze be directly forward. Be focused on what you ought to be focused on. And according to Colossians 3, we know what we ought to be focused on. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. You know, when Martin Luther met a person that he knew in town he would ask them frequently, brother, sister, do I find you praying? What's he trying to say there? He's trying to say, are you, are you right now actively, consciously living in the presence of God as I meet you today? Whether you're just out running errands or whatever. Do I find you with your gaze directly before you and your heart set on the Lord I mean, I was just, I was reading in Psalm, in the Psalms this week, and I want to turn you there real quickly to Psalm 35. Hold your, hold your finger in Proverbs, turn back to Psalm 35. And there's this connection between faithfulness and setting the Lord before you that just struck me as I read it. Psalm 35. Make sure I'm in the right place here. Sorry, it's not Psalm 35. I looked at the wrong one. It's Psalm 17. Psalm 17. My apologies. Psalm 17, the end of that chapter. Notice his what his what he's focused on, what he's thinking about, what's dominating his heart and mind. He says in verse 14, Psalm 17, this is David. 
He says, for men by your hand, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. He's not focused fundamentally and first on this life. He's focused on the next life. He says, you fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to infants. Notice he says, people who just pursue money and have good families are worldly. He says that if you, if you just live for that, just want a healthy family, just want money, just want security. He says, that's not Christian. That's not godly if it stops there. He says that that puts you in the category of men of the world whose portion is in this life. Not every man of the world is immoral. Most of them are moral. But he says, verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness, spoken from the mouth of an adulterer. So his, his, his focus is God. His focus is eternity. His focus is righteousness. I think that's an illustration of what Solomon is talking about, his son, when he talks about letting your eyes look directly forward and setting your gaze straight before you. Pondering, verse 26 of Proverbs 4, the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Think about what you're doing don't swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. It's this, I'm resolved to walk with Jesus. It's got to start there. So that's the first protection. It comes down to a heart that is in love with God and his ways and walking in the ways of wisdom and following after the true wisdom who is Jesus Christ and resolving to walk with him. Secondly, protection, rejoice in the wife God has given you. Let's read some verses that make us blush, shall we? Proverbs 5, verse 18 to 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? He's saying, he, it's interesting, he uses the same word here. He uses the word, he says, be intoxicated with your wife, with your husband. Don't be intoxicated with a forbidden woman. That's the, that, it, he's saying, be led astray by your husband, wife. <laughs> be led astray by your wife. It, the, the word intoxicated literally means to be, you know, almost to, to be drunk to the point of being under the control of something. So it's saying be under the control of the physical appearance and the love and the relationship of your wife uh, with your wife. Let that be the, the thing that controls you, that intoxicates you, that makes you drunk with delight. Cultivate that and then you will not be intoxicated with other women. The best defense is a good offense. And that's why God says it's good. Keep it in the fireplace and enjoy it to the max. And you will have a great marriage and relationship, assuming that all the other parts of your relationship are good. 
So rejoice in the wife God has given you. Thirdly, reject lustful desires immediately. Proverbs 6, verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. So it's like at the first start, seeing that woman, don't desire her beauty. Chapter 4, verses 14 to 15. Open it up a little bit more as well. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. It's like you see it. It's wicked. Walk, walk away. Turn away. So don't desire what isn't yours. Don't daydream. Don't take the first steps towards sin. Don't flirt. Don't be naive. You know how, you know how it looks. Conversation turns a little personal. Hands touch. Notice perfume, look in the eyes. It's just playful banter. We're just joking. Also, beware of the spiritual. Beware of the spiritual. Doing ministry together, counseling, witnessing. He's the man her husband is not. He's sympathetic, he's caring, he's a strong leader, he's sacrificial. He wants to be needed. He likes the attention. She actually listens to me. And it's all happening in some counseling context or witnessing context or ministry context. Beware. Michael Lawrence, again, writes that he uses the illustration of Sexual desire and initial desires toward sexuality are like on-ramps on the interstate. You know, on-ramps are designed to get your car up to full speed so you can get on the interstate. Nobody getting on an on-ramp all of a sudden says, oh, let's stop that and let's go backwards. That'd be a good idea. And so what, what Solomon is telling us here is reject that stuff outright. If it's not with your wife and it's not going somewhere, if it's not with your husband and it's not going somewhere, then it shouldn't be there to begin with. So resolve to walk with Jesus. Rejoice in the wife God has given you. Reject lustful desires immediately. Fourthly, receive the help of others. Proverbs 5, 1 and 2. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Be attentive to my wisdom. Listen to what I'm saying, son. Be willing to like believe somebody other than what you feel. That's what he says. So we have to rely on the wisdom and what other people say to us from their experience. And also from what they know to be true, even if they haven't experienced it, because it's what God's word teaches. So let me ask you a question. Is your sexuality off limits to the input of others? Is it just off limits? Or is it, are you eager to have God's instruction, young people, the instruction of your parents? Because that's what the context is. It's a parent instructing their son. So resolve to walk with Jesus, rejoice in the wife God has given you, reject lustful desires immediately, receive the help of others, and rely on God's wisdom and not your own. Proverbs 7, 1-3, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments 
and live. Please rely on me. I want to lead you to the path of life. Keep my teaching, verse 2, is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. Get in the family of wisdom. That's what he's saying. Get, have wisdom as your sister. Call insight your intimate friend. Why? Verse 5, to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. So keep wisdom. Rely on God's wisdom and not your own. Don't rely on your feelings. Don't rely on what other people tell you if it's not from God. Rely on God's wisdom. So that's protection. Finally, and I'm going to conclude now with redemption. Because the reality is, if we were all to be honest, that most of us in this room have not stewarded this area of our life very well. Now, I'm not saying that all of us have committed adultery. I don't think that's true at all. However, I do believe we have been unfaithful and unwise, and probably none of us is without sin in the area of moral purity. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshiped things other than God. We've drank from broken cisterns, and we've reaped a relative degree of consequences for that. But what is God's posture toward us? Well, God in the Bible is described, of course, as a jealous husband. And we rightly deserve his just wrath as unfaithful to him. But we meet Jesus in John 11 in a situation where he's dealing with, as you know, a woman who is caught in adultery. He's teaching the really moral leaders, go and get this woman. I mean, the gall of them to do something like that to begin with. I mean, how insensitive, how unloving. But anyway, that's another sermon. But goes and gets this woman who's been caught in adultery, brings her, sits her in front of Jesus or stands her in front of Jesus and says, Jesus, the law says we ought to take her out and stone her. What should you do, Mr. Rabbi, Mr. Law Keeper, Mr. Care About What God Wants? What do you want to do with her? And Jesus looks at her, looks at the crowd. You know what he says. Anyone in here don't have any sin? Feel free to pick up the first stone. Anyone in here not a sinner? Anyone in here don't need grace? Anyone in here don't need the forgiveness of God? Anyone in here don't need to be reconciled to God? You feel free to go ahead and pick up the first stone. I'll tell you, the only person in that room or that area that had the right to pick up a stone is Jesus. And he didn't pick up a stone, did he? They slowly went away, one at a time, until only Jesus was there with her. And he asked her the question, who condemned you? She says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I. Leave your life of sin. When we meet Jesus in the midst of a situation where a woman commits adultery, we meet him, one, meet him as one who does not condemn. We meet him as one who is eager to forgive, who is eager to restore, who is eager to pardon, and yes, who is eager to call people to leave that life. But how is it that he can just say that? I, the son of God, don't condemn you for sin. I mean, doesn't God care about sin? Isn't that what the big deal he cares about in the Bible? You know, people disobey him. He's going to like burn them up. Why, how, Jesus is the son of God. How, does he, how can he get away with saying, I don't condemn you? Well, we know the answer to that. At least several of us do. 
because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through faith in Christ, through belief and trust in Christ, through looking to Christ and not to ourselves, God counts our righteous, not our righteousness or unrighteousness against us, but Jesus's righteousness for us. So his perfect life gets placed upon our imperfect life. And we are free from condemnation because he bore the condemnation on the cross as he experienced the wrath of God for that sin and for all those who will trust in him. So if you believe, if you're sitting here this morning and you believe that your sin has disqualified you from relationship with Jesus, I just want to encourage you and say, no, it's not your sin that's going to disqualify you from relationship with Jesus. It's your righteousness that disqualifies you from relationship with Jesus. That's the thing that keeps people out of the kingdom first and foremost, is their belief that they're good enough. They don't need a savior, that they don't need a, a righteousness. And we're going to see two people this morning that's their confession. It's not my righteousness. When D stands before us and when Hannah stands before us, they're not declaring their righteousness. They're declaring Jesus's righteousness, that it's his life and his death for my sinful life and would be eternal death had I not by his grace been brought to trust in him and repent of sin. So he doesn't condemn. We're all thankful for that that he doesn't condemn, that we meet him as someone who is eager to dispense pardon and grace and forgiveness. And this is what really blew me away. And with this, I'm going to close. This is what totally blew me away yesterday, thinking about who's writing Proverbs 5 to 7. And it's Solomon, the son of an adulterous relationship. I mean, Solomon's the main writer of Proverbs. He warns his son against the devastation of adultery because he knows it. Personally, he saw it in his mom, Bathsheba, and his father, David. I mean, every warning against adultery must have been haunted by the memory of his father and mother. Imagine what he must have felt. He was the product of a marriage that never should have been. He watched the royal family of Israel in the middle of Israel's golden age implode because this union that brought him into existence had come into existence. The whole monarchy was blown up. Israel's divided over the fact that he was born. Not because the fact that he was born, but he was the product of a relationship that should never have existed God did put away David's sin, as we see in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord has put away your sin. He forgave him, determining to bear its condemnation himself in the work of Jesus later on down in history. But he did not remove from David the wounds or disgrace or consequences societally and socially that came as a result of it. But yet, out of the wreckage that was David's family emerges Solomon, by choosing Solomon of all the sons to assume the throne and to write the book of Proverbs, God is saying something absolutely stunning about his grace. He really can work all things, including devastating sin, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
That's what's great about this is that underneath all this, this is not just some guy who's got it all together telling people who don't, hey, get your act together because that's what God wants. This is not a moral instruction manual alone. Look beyond, look behind, look what's going on in the lives of the people that are writing these things. And it just is staggering. The destruction of adultery is very real. We've seen that. It's disgrace is lasting. We've seen that. It's to be avoided at all costs. We get that. But it's still not more powerful than the grace of God. It's not beyond the pale of redemption. To those who, like David, have fallen, and perhaps there are some here who have, take heart. If you repented and trust Christ, he's borne all of your condemnation. I neither do I condemn you. And though you view with painful and appropriate regret the damage that your sin caused, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. It's very much like God to bring something unexpected and amazingly good from the most devastating wreckage of human sin. Very much like God to do that. It's the story of the Bible. The Bible is not a story of good people being used by God for good things. It's a story of God using the worst people, terrible people, disqualified, should be third string quarterback or not even on the team, people, to advance his purposes, to show his grace, to demonstrate his power, and to wow the world with who he is. That's the Bible. The grace of God is stronger than the sin of any man. Now I want to invite, um, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite um, the Withrows, Kim and Keith, to come up and share with us some of the ways that they have sought in their many years of marriage to cultivate fidelity and faithfulness and oneness with each other. And uh, so let me lead us in prayer as they, as they come forward. Father, we, we pause to acknowledge and thank you for your grace, for your power, for demonstrating your grace in the story of Scripture over and over and over again. We pray that you would help us to hear this word this morning, to receive it, to heed its warnings, but also to rejoice in its protective power and the grace that it offers for those of us who have failed. So thank you for, um, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I would certainly say is that because of God's kindness in Christ, having saved us right before we were married, um, everything that we've enjoyed in our 28-year relationship has been because of Him. And there are some things that early on in our relationship that we realized. One of them was that uh, we didn't know how to date according to the Bible. And so God was kind in forgiving us of so many uh, of practices of sin. And, and that affected us for the first few years of our relationship in a lot of ways. But as we learned the truth of God and enjoyed walking in the grace of God, we realized that we were together to serve one another. And when we understood that and expressed that in every way, 
uh, it, it, it's exciting. And we've realized that marriage only gets better and better and better. And everything about it, only more and more and more exciting. And I can certainly say that I'm married to my best friend. And a part of everything that our relationship's about, the little words, the looks, the touches, the feels, everything keeps the fire burning at home in a very exciting way. And uh, I can't wait to get home from work. And as a man, there are those temptations outside of marriage and in for women as well. But the, one, the two things that have been so helpful in our relationship is, number one, we keep our home exciting, and she's the most beautiful woman I know. And number two is that the consequences of the opposite, as Brother Mark has shared, has always been before my eyes to bring the, the cross disgrace through my actions have caused me fear through my life at many times. And so I'm thankful to the Lord for the warnings and for the blessing that the marriage bed is undefiled, enjoy it to its fullest, and also that the consequences of the other that the devil doesn't tell you about are horrible and a reality that I've seen as a former pastor in a Bible college. How many of my friends, although they knew the truth, they made the opposite choice, and it was tragic. And so I can say with to my wife and give her great confidence. There were some verses I wanted to read. She said, don't you dare read that. And the Bible is quite explicit, and I'm thankful for it. And oh, how exciting it is to enjoy a marriage where it's built on grace, fully enjoying every legal thing the Bible gives us, and enjoying it to its fullest. So I would encourage you in that. Thank you. Please stand with us and sing. Show. Sure. 